0: 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read the first 13 verses Uh, this morning. It's a letter from Paul, the apostle, to Timothy, who is a minister in the city of Ephesus. And Paul gives him various instructions about how to uh, get this relatively new church established and on a sure footing. So let's read chapter 3 and verse 1 Our Father, we pray simply this morning uh, that the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, if you've been around the church world at all, uh, or even uh, picks up some of the debates that get into the news whenever the church occasionally pops in, you'll know that there, there are a whole different variety of churches, uh, that there are different traditions, different ways of worship, different ways of dressing, different approaches to uh, who is and who isn't allowed to be a minister. Uh, the the Protestant, Protestant stream, which is where we would put ourselves here at Christchurch Central, have, I, I hope, uh, well rightly so, been known as the people of the, the Bible in particular. That, that is the big thing at the heart uh, of any Protestant church. So I want to say something to you this morning. Uh, that its first sound off key, and that's this, the Bible alone is not enough. Okay, the Bible alone is not enough. The Bible alone is not enough for, for Christchurch Central, this new, what are we, 18-month-old church, to, to flourish. The Bible alone is not enough, if you're a Christian, for you to, to grow as a disciple to fullness and fruitfulness. The Bible alone is, is not enough, if you're not a Christian. Very likely for you to to come to faith. The Bible alone, therefore, is not enough to reach the entire city of Leeds or the entire county of Yorkshire. Now, straight, straight away, let me qualify that a little bit. I'm not saying that we've got some sort of extra books that we need. I'm not saying there's anything missing from the Bible as if we need more revelation. I'm not saying there's anyone on earth who was able to come and speak in God's name in the same way as. Isaiah the prophet or Paul the apostle. No, the Bible is full and complete, sufficient for for every need. But it was never God's plan simply to use a book to to reach the world, simply to, to use a book to care for his people. In a way, you can see that right back at the beginning. So children, who were the first man and woman that God made? First man and woman were Adam and Eve. Now, when God made Adam and Eve. Uh, He did so in a particular order. We thought about this last week. Paul talked about it last week. Uh, He made Adam first and then Eve. And the significance of that was that it was only Adam who was made, who was created, when God gave the commandments not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So how was Eve to learn that she shouldn't eat from that tree? God didn't write a book. He didn't send an angel. He told Adam, and Adam was to tell Eve. So right from those earliest days, he was using human beings, one man, to tell another what God wanted. Now, as the Bible story unpacks, we're told that actually the Adam and Eve story, at least in part, is a picture of Christ and the church. Eve represents the church, the people of God. And so what we see, even in the Garden of Eden, is God using someone, Adam in this case, to teach the church what God wants. God gives his word, and then it's taught to the church. And all the way through the Bible story, as it grows and develops, more and more people are brought into God's people. God puts men in place primarily to do two things, to teach his word and also to care for the flock. So sometimes he calls those people shepherds to use that flock imagery. Sometimes in the Old Testament, he calls them elders as a group of people who are to care for God's people who are known as the elders of Israel. He appoints priests and prophets and all sorts of different roles in the Old Testament. But essentially, they do two things. They care for God's people and they teach God's people. And so, when the first hearers of 1 Timothy heard Timothy perhaps read this letter out loud to them on a Sunday morning, and they hear this saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires to the office of overseer, he hears a noble task. Or when in chapter five, they hear Paul talk about elders, this wouldn't be something completely new. They wouldn't be putting their hand up and saying, look, Timothy, what's all this about? What's all this about elders or overseers? Who are these people? There's been a tradition all the way through the Bible of God appointing uh, men to particular positions to care for and to teach his church. And that's Paul's concern in this little corner of 1 Timothy I start there for two reasons, because it could could be the passage we've just read, frankly, hasn't sort of super excited you. There are exciting stories, aren't there, in the Bible, David and Goliath, Noah and the Ark. Uh, There are sweet passages that we tend to know well, Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, A list of qualifications for those aspiring to the office of overseer probably has never been put on one of those cheesy Christian posters with a lamb gambling in a meadow and a rainbow and all the rest of it. It's not the most exciting corner of the Bible. So, so why is it of relevance to us? It's of relevance to us, first of all, if, if we're not sure about Christianity, we're still trying to work it out, are slightly sceptical, because it tells us what kind of people are we meant to be listening to? Who are the kind of people that, that God wants speaking in his name, if you like? If you turn on the, the BBC and they need a religious opinion, then very often it'll be whoever happens to be the... Archbishop of Canterbury that, that that year or whoever local bishop they, they can pull in but, but actually in 1 Timothy 3 God describes not so much a position but, but the character that he wants in those who hold that position and if you are a Christian I, this should be of interest to you particularly if you're a, a regular here at Christchurch Central uh, when I was uh, I think about 16 all the uh, boys in my a particular boarding house at boarding school had to fill out a, a form that was a kind of career survey. What are you going to do with your life? There's eight of us. And so we answered various questions that seemed very strange at the time. You handed it in, four computers. It was sent back a, a couple of weeks later. We all trooped in to see the housemaster. And of the eight boys in, our, in my house, seven of the eight of us were told that the ideal career for us was to be fish farmers. I, I have no idea why. None of the questions were do you like fish? You know, do you like farming? Well, there we go. But along with the answer, you know, seven of us were to be fish farmers, came a job description. It says, "So you're so well suited to be fish farm- farmers, here's what involved, is involved in fish farming. Uh, it is not a document I can say I read. I had no desire to be a fish farmer. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 is not the equivalent for us this morning. A job description for a job that frankly most of us don't potentially want. It is relevant for us for, for two reasons if we're regular here first of all it's relevant because obviously god cares about it he's put it in his word it is true that in the bible there are some things of first importance essentially how do you get your sin forgiven and get into heaven they, they are primary important things you have to believe if you like to go to heaven and there's lots of things in the bible that frankly you don't have to believe to go to heaven but that doesn't make those other things completely irrelevant if god thinks they're worth including in his word then they matter they might not be essential for salvation, but they'll be essential for something. He doesn't waste words. So if it matters to God, it should matter to us. But secondly, we need to identify the kind of people who'd be right to put into these positions. These positions that are described here as overseers and deacons, they're not they aren't paid employment positions. We might touch on this a little later, but this is not just dealing with the kind of people you might employ to be a minister. Uh, rather, these are the people who often will be members of the congregation, but step into these roles to help care for and teach the church. So we need to know what we're looking for. At the moment, there's only one person in one of these roles. We have no deacons and one overseer or elder, which is me. That is not a healthy position. We need more. So we need to know, from God's word, what are the kind of people he's looking for, for this role. So let's dive in. I want to ask three questions quickly this morning. The first is, who are these, who are these people? Who are these people? And there are two roles. Verse uh, 1, there's a the role of overseer. And in verse 8, there's a the role of deacon. Let's start with the overseers. The overseers, or if you've got an older translation of the Bible, it's um, episcopal. It's the bishop word. Modern translations tend to say overseer. Older translations tend to say Bishop. Now, these are the same people who Paul elsewhere in 1 Timothy will call elders. So in chapter 5, verse 17, talks about the elders who govern the church. Or if you just flick over the page, in fact, a few pages, sorry, to Titus chapter 1, you'll see 2 Timothy comes after 1 Timothy, and then Titus chapter 1. We get a very similar passage where Paul talks about appointing these overseers. But just see how he writes in chapter 1 of Titus. So chapter one, verse five, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, children of believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer. There's that word from 1 Timothy again, the bishop word. As God's steward must be above reproach. See what's going on there? One minute he's calling them elders. The next minute he's calling them bishops or overseers. That's because they are the same role: bishop and elder, shepherd to use the language from one Peter, pastor to use a sort of English version of shepherd. They're all the same role in the Bible. There's not a kind of ranking system where you start off as a, an elder and then you uh, kind of graduate to be a bishop or an overseer. They are the same role. And it's a bit like if a, a head teacher. Called all the children. children. Imagine the head teacher called you all into assembly one morning and said, children, I don't want you running in the playground. Pupils are not allowed to throw food at lunchtime. The pupils and the children are the same group, aren't they? You can say a bit later, well, look, I'm a child, but I'm not a pupil. So I thought it was okay for me to throw food. No, they're the same groups, the pupils and the children. It's just a different word for the same people. So in 1 Timothy uh, these, this first office, if you like, this first role that Paul talks about is that of the bishop or the overseer or the elder. Call it what you will. So that's the first role. And what's the second one down there in verse 9? Well, deacons. It's actually just the, word, the Bible's word for a servant. It's the same word you would use normally to talk about a servant. But here it is, it, if you like, an office, a role. It's not just talking about the fact that we're all meant to be servants in one sense. Because there are qualifications to becoming this deacon. Verse 9, they must hold to the mystery of the faith. Uh, They must be able to care for their families, and so on, so on. So so both these roles, elder or overseer, and deacon, although they're described using words that could just be used for an older person or a servant, are, if you like, appointed roles, official positions, if you like, in the church as it's set up in the New Testament. So there are these two offices overseer or elder, and deacon. If there are two offices, there are no more and no less. Uh, we're not free to, to just make this up when it comes to how the church is organised and looked after. I don't think it's a tremendously complicated passage in that sense. It's not confusing when you read the New Testament as to how many church roles there are. Now, as time developed, you may well know that, particularly from the sort of 200s onwards, more and more levels got added in. So nowadays, in some sort of streams of denominations, you have bishops and archbishops and deans and archdeacons and all the rest of it. But but if you go back to the the first century, if you like, go back to the days of the Bible, there are just these two roles, the overseer and the deacon. And so as we we look to put them in place at at Christchurch, we're not free to improvise. We shouldn't have fewer that it will take time to get there. We can't just rush and put the wrong people in the wrong places. But we can't have more either. 1 Timothy 3 is not a passage about leadership in general, but specifically about the two roles that God has chosen. And it's his house at the end of the day. At the end of chapter 3, he calls the church his house. And so he gets to decide the rules. He gets to decide how it's structured. And we need to listen, learn, and frankly obey. So those are the two roles, but what do they do? Second, that's the second of our three questions. What do they do? Well, let's look at the overseer. Two things primarily. The first is they lovingly lead and care for Christ's church. They lovingly lead and care for Christ's church. That's implied in the very word, isn't it? The overseer, an overseer who someone has oversight. You didn't need me to tell you this morning. Uh, Someone who is, in that sense, in charge, not in a lording it over way. Leadership in the Bible is never about sort of looking down your nose at those below you. Remember Jesus' words, that even he, the Son of Man, Son of God, came not to be served, but to serve. So it's not like in the world where you go up a pyramid and finally you make it to the top. You know, the best Christian gets to be the minister. And it's certainly not the case. But the role involves giving a degree of leadership and direction to the church. Again, in chapter 5 and verse 17, they're called the elders who rule well. Or at least they should rule well. That's why in verse four and five of the passage we read, chapter three, Paul has a concern about how the, this particular man cares for his own household, that's at home, uh, with dignity, keeping his children submissive, not in a kind of you know, smashing them down violent way, but basically if he's not the kind of guy who can lovingly care for his wife and children, what, why would you put him in a position where he's meant to be lovingly care for more than just his wife and children? In a way, how we act at home and how we act at work are intricately tied together here we sometimes well opinions divided isn't it as to whether when we talk about politicians whether we should care about their private lives sometimes people say well you know what they do on their own time how they treat their wife their family how they live it's nothing to do with their, their professional life but Paul won't have any of that in the church at least uh, so they're to lovingly lead and care for the church and secondly there's to teach it's just sort of hidden away there almost at the end of verse two But in that list of qualifications, the the elders, the bishops, the overseers are to be able to teach. Now, it doesn't say preach, so it's not necessarily that everyone who fills this role, you know, can stand up and do the kind of monologue thing. But in some format, whether it's one-to-one, maybe it's with small group, maybe they're more of a kind of council-like type person. But in some format, they need to be able to teach God's Word. That's why in most denominations, Church of England or certainly for us in IPC as well in the Presbyterian churches, but before someone can become an elder or an overseer or a bishop, uh, they will have their theology examined, their, their ability to teach examined. And for me, what that meant was filling out various literally written exams and then I had to stand at the front of a room and was asked questions by those who were already in this role and he had to answer on the fly so people asked, you know, asked all sorts of theological questions and then, after I left the room, it was up to them whether they thought that I was competent to teach or not. There's nothing, it might be worth saying, in Timothy, or in fact Titus, the parallel letter we just looked at, there's nothing, for example, about um, ability to, to perform miracles. Occasionally that drifts around a bit today, you know, to be church leaders, you need to be the kind of people who can heal and all that, you know. There's nothing about it whatsoever, uh, as, as Paul the Apostle who, if you read the story of Acts, does seem to be used to do miracles and healings, and we read the extraordinary uh, account of his life when he can uh, heal the blind, you know, raise the sick, raise the lame from their uh, mats. There's nothing about that, if you like, being passed on to the next generation. Now, Timothy is an ordinary man, and his job is to care for the people in the church and to teach. That's why these letters like Timothy and Titus are full of commands to these young men to preach the word in season and out, to correct those who've gone astray. Teaching is the best parallel to being in ministry. People often, you know, the hairdressers and they say, you know, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a minister of a church. And you can see the you know, poor guy, the face clouds everything. So, oh, no, what do I say next? You know, How do you talk to a minister? Um, what kind of weirdo? So often I say, well, the closest thing is it's a bit like being a teacher. I spend most of my time trying to teach in one sense uh, or another. Again, remember Adam. It's the first thing he was told to do, to teach those who came after him. How were his children to learn not to eat from the truth of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, Adam was going to teach them. It's not that God pops up to every single individual and says everything he wants. No, he uses people to teach one another. So they're to care, for these overseers, are uh, to care and to teach. Uh, what about the deacons? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? As you read those verses, there's almost nothing about what they're to do. There's lots on their qualifications, the kind of character they're meant to have, but almost nothing about what they're meant to do. I take it that's because Paul thinks that it's already clear what they're meant to do. That as the Ephesians receive this letter, they've already got that category of deacon in their minds. By far the most likely explanation of that uh, comes from an account in Acts 6. Sorry to jump around a little this morning, but if you just turn back to Acts chapter 6, you read what, what most people see as the establishment of the deacons for the first ever time. Acts chapter 6 is page 914. Page 914. And we're right in the early days of the church. The church has just begun. It's been going for probably just a matter of weeks by now. We don't get some time scales as Acts goes on, but very early days. And the church is growing fast. Lots of people are becoming Christians. And you've got the, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, and that's about it. So let me read from verse one. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews, the Jewish believers, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so what, what's going on? The, there's all these widows who need caring for. You imagine, this, particularly in the first century, uh, it was a tough life, particularly if you're a widow. And so the church was caring for them. The distribution means the distribution of food. They were gathering food in and then giving it to those who <laughs> needed it. And those who are Greek were saying, well, look, we're being neglected compared to those who are Jewish ethnically. So verse 2, the 12, the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples together and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good refute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See what the apostles are saying? The apostles who, in this, at this stage, are acting like the overseers, the elders, teaching, praying. Uh, they say, look, we've got to care for these widows, but we just haven't got the capacity to do it. Or rather, if we start doing that, we won't any longer be able to teach and pray as we ought to. Therefore, pick seven men of good repute, and they can be in charge of caring for the needs of of those in the church so these seven are chosen and that becomes their role Uh, the word servant is the word deacon and so most people understand this as a sort of informal if you like or the the beginning of the diaconate that the deacons they do two things therefore deacons Uh, first of all they're servants they they care particularly for the the practical needs of the church Uh, they care for those in need physically They look after the sick. They help those who are struggling financially. They they have that oversight of those in particular physical need. But they're also, to use someone else's phrase, shock absorbers, if you like. They're they're those who who are there to enable the apostles, or later the elders or the overseers, to devote themselves, verse 4, to prayer and the ministry of the word. If you've got the elders who are meant to be teaching and praying particularly their responsibility if they spend all their time collecting the bread and giving it out they're not going to have as much time to be able to do what they've been called to do it's just a sort of division of labor thing if you like so deacons are both servants and shock absorbers they're not therefore trainee elders it's not the kind of consolation prize sorry you didn't quite make it to be an elder or a, a bishop but hey you can be a deacon no it's its own job just as worthy as that of the elder or bishop. So, what do they do? The overseer leads, cares, and teaches. Uh, The deacon is a servant and a shock absorber to make sure the physical needs of the congregation are cared for and the elders can devote themselves to their job. Uh, It is, verse one, a noble task. That's particularly the the overseer, but I take it applies to the deacon as well. So, So, it may well be that that this is something you desire. Desiring it is a good thing. See, verse one, if anyone desires the task, it is a noble thing. So do please pray for it. It will, be much, it will be a much healthier church if it's not just me as an elder. Okay, that is a bad position to be in. It's a inevitable position because we're new and 18 months old, all the rest of it. But please do pray. And also think, who, who are the right people for these jobs? Who are the people who would fill this kind of role? It's not just up to me to choose. I don't need to sort of pick my mates or whatever. As a congregation, ultimately, you would vote to accept, yeah, this person is the right person uh, for the role. So please pray that God would raise up elders and deacons. Uh, please think about whether it might be you or someone else. And God willing, we'll be able to get them in place in the next few months and years. Just before we close, though, eh, uh, let's ask, what should they be like? What should they be like? Well, we've seen in verse 1, they first of all should be someone who desires the role uh, there was an archbishop of Canterbury called Anselm, very early dawn, just after William the Conqueror. Uh, he's one of the most famous archbishop of Can- archbishops of Canterbury. And he, he was a monk before he was archbishop. And when the king said, I want you to be archbishop, he really didn't want to be. He really didn't want to be. So eventually, uh, a bunch of other guys got him, grabbed him, prized his fingers open, forced the kind of staff that the archbishop of Canterbury has into his hand and closed his fingers around it and then said the kind of prayers over him, forced him to be archbishop of Canterbury. We are not going to be doing that. Okay? We're not going to be pouncing on people, forcing them to be elders. It's something that needs to be desired. And the primary qualification there is character. As you read through the, uh, the passage, there's very little about ability. Yes, they have to be able to teach, but after that, it's character, isn't it? Above competency. They need to be self-controlled in regards, well, to alcohol. They're not given to, to much drink. Uh, in regard to their sex life, married to one woman, not many, not an adulterer. I don't think that means you have to be married, by the way. It just means if you are married, it's to one wife, not many. Uh, Control their temper. They're not to be quarrelsome or violent, but rather gentle. Uh, Control their attitude to money. They shouldn't be greedy, Uh, particularly with the deacons, who may well oversee a lot of the finance of the church. It'd be wrong for them. They're the kind of person who's a bit too keen on seeking a pound here or two. You don't want to put them in charge of the finances. Uh, We've seen already that as well as as being self-controlled, they're to be family men. Uh, The church in that sense is an extended household. And so how someone treats their family is gonna be a good clue to how they would treat God's church. There also to be experienced, see in verse six, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. On the whole, there's probably a reason why one of the Bible's terms for church leaders is elder. Now, there's no rule. The Bible doesn't say anywhere you've got to be how many years old. But it's, inter- it's just interesting. What's interesting to me, anyway, um, that many of the kind of famous Bible uh, characters began their ministry work at about the age of thirty. So Joseph became prime minister of Egypt at thirty. David became king at thirty. To be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to be thirty. Jesus' ministry began at thirty. It's not old, is it? Thirty, uh, but it is at least not, you know, not super young. There's no rules. But at least not a recent convert I wonder if at times we sort of rush people through you go to university perhaps get involved in the Christian union and then pop out and work for a church and a year or two later you're suddenly in ministry and actually you've never had any experience of life uh, never had any time to grow up Uh, you're 26 and you're a minister I wonder if Paul would say just hold on a little bit Uh, give people time to grow and you'll see their character it's important therefore, they're respected inside and outside the church. Verse 7, even those who would say, look, we're not Christians, but we can see this is a basically a decent bloke. Okay? He's not greedy, he's not drunkard, he can control his tongue. So we don't believe what he preaches, but we can see why uh, you would put him into that position. It's very similar for deacons, so we won't pick through that. Two things slightly different, verse 9. They don't have to be able to teach, but they do have to hold on to the mysteries of the faith. Therefore, a deacon is not examined in the same depth of theology, for example, within our own denomination. They have to hold to the kind of core truths of Christianity, but they don't just believe everything in the same sense as an elder. And in verse 11, there's just a little bit of debate. I can't go into this now, but last week we touched on the fact that that overseer role, the bishop role, or elder role, if you like, is a male role. Uh, What about deacons? Well, in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers. There is some debate here, because in Greek, the language of the New Testament, the word wife and woman is the same. There's not a distinct word for wife, woman, or husband uh, and man. So it may well be, in verse 11, that it's women also, as in women deacons, deaconesses, if you like. I'm going to get into the debate. It's safe to say that in the particular denomination we're a part of, then women serve as deacons as well, uh, as men, and that is part of the reason. But the descriptions are very dull, aren't they? If we're honest, just pretty dull. These are just ordinary characteristics of Christians. None of us are meant to be angry. None of us are meant to be drunkards. None of us are meant to uh, be running after many women or many men. We're all meant to be hospitable. We're all meant to be gentle rather than quarrelsome. Someone said that that what you want for elders are vanilla men. What's the most boring flavour of ice cream? Vanilla, exactly, yeah. Exciting flavours like chocolate and toffee and butterscotch. Vanilla is the boring flavour, isn't it? And in some ways, it's just vanilla men. They're not. They don't have to be superstars. They don't have to be sort of set the world alight when they teach or preach. A massive relief. Just vanilla, boring men who will be faithful, do a job, and not bring the church into disrepute. That's why you're to pray, you're to pray for them, because there is an enemy attacking twice in verse six and seven. We're told about the devil trying to take down these leaders and snare them. So please do pray for those in leadership in the church. It is ultimately for all of our good. Because the qualification list there really is is Christ-likeness. That's what Paul is saying. They need as best they can to be like Christ. Ephesians 4, he writes to the same church, the church in Ephesus, and says, look, actually, all these elders and deacons, they are gifts to the church. I don't even think of church leaders in that sense. Spiritual gifts to the church. Right from the days of the Old Testament. uh, God promised... That is part of part of the new covenant, the day of great blessing, he would send not just the one good shepherd, Christ, but also many other under shepherds to care for his people. Because that is his desire. He wants to care for his people. Uh, he promised, I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who he will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's Jeremiah three. God wants us to understand more and more about him. He wants to know us and us to know him. He wants us to be cared for. And that in part is why he's given us not just the Bible, but also the church with its leadership. The two go hand in hand. Of course, the the, the men and women who fill these roles sit under the Bible. The Bible is the authority because it's the word of Christ. They're not equal in that sense. But the Bible alone is not going to do anything, is it? It's going to sit God has given a second gift which is these elders or overseers and deacons in order to feed us. Why did Christ come? Well, he came to forgive us, to lay his life down for us, to cleanse all our sin and then to gather us to be a people who know him in increasing measure. That is the goal of salvation. That's why God's church is called a household, a family. We're gathered together. Elders and deacons are a crucial part of that. Let's pray that God would raise these men and women up. Our Father, we... Praise you that you are a God who didn't just cast us off when we walked from you, but you're a God who cares uh, for us so much that you sent your son, the great shepherd, into the world to lay his life down for us. Uh, We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are the good shepherd, that you are the true uh, apostle, the one sent from the Father uh, to preach the good news to us. You are the true evangelist uh, who brings us the gospel. You are the true deacon, the true servant who gave his life as a ransom for many. You are the older brother You're the one who oversees our souls. We thank you ultimately that we are safe in your care. We do pray that in your kindness, you would raise up men and women to fill these positions here at Christ Church Central in order that we might better know you, in order that you might feed us through their ministry, in order that we might worship you, heart, soul, mind and strength. We ask in your name, amen.